Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are looking or listening to us. And thank you very much for being part of this community. My name is Monica Hernandez, and I'm your host today with Material Business and Infinity Growth. And we continue with the capsule of sustainability. And I have a very special guest today. Abby, thank you so much for coming into the podcast. Uh, you're very welcome. It's it's great to be invited. Uh, I, I never pass up the opportunity to to speak about sustainability and uh, and specifically geothermal energy. And that is something that we share in common. <laughs> we don't spare opportunities to talk about what we are passionate about, and that is something that I really appreciate. So, Andy, I'm gonna read your bio here. He describes himself as a Cornish vegetarian. Echo Warrior. <laughs> he has a, a bachelor degree in, with honors in earth science from the Queen Mary College, the University of London, and 30 years of upstream and oil and gas experience, specifically in subsurface drilling and wells. From mud logging, well site geologic, geology and operations, geology beginning. And he developed the skills in operational optimization and cost saving. Ultimately, managing large subsurface teams, creating efficiency and reducing waste. And he has combined his passion for oil and gas and environmentalism to transition to geothermal energy with a strong focus on measured and sus a sustainable, inclusive energy transition. He is a proponent of the holistic approach to a net zero and is now, <clears throat> is now sorry, surface manager at Seraphim. I hope I pronounced that correct. Yes, you did. Thank you. Energy Limited at UK Geothermal. Geothermal development company with a mission to save the planet one megawatt at a time. What an exciting bio, um, Andy and the, the thing that caught my attention is you have words in there that are fantastic. The term holistic, the term integration, the transition, and how you made that change from one career that seems to have nothing to do with the other with so much success. So can you tell us a little bit about why did you make that change or when was that spark? The, Aha moment that I like to call. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Uh, people people look at oil and gas and geothermal and think that they're two completely different worlds, and yes, they are, but they are they do also have so much in common. Um, and I put a few things in my bio there, um, which which describe that even in something that's that's considered dirty, the oil and gas business. You can do environmentally sensitive things. For example, um, my my the latter part of my career was focused on operation optimization and uh, reducing costs. And as you mentioned, um, that operational optimization basically cuts the money spent, but also the time taken to do certain things. And if you picture a big thirsty oil rig um, pumping out all of these 
you know, polluting diesel fumes and, and all the people on board that it takes to feed, etc. If you can save that operation one day of time, then that's, that's a whole day that that machine doesn't have to do what it's there doing. And, and that basically is, is a way of being uh, sustainable or more sustainable in that particular environment. Um, and and I, I always saw it as a victory like if I was saving time for these, for these oil and gas rigs because uh, every day you shave off their, their uh, schedule, then you, you're saving the planet a little bit by not having to uh, undertake all of those tasks. Um, but I, I really did enjoy my time in oil and gas. It was something that was fun. I enjoy the combination of geology and engineering. Um, I, I, I enjoyed the kind of camaraderie of, of the people that I worked with. Oil and gas people are fantastic. They're just, they're good fun. It's a very professional environment, but very relaxed at the same time. Uh, and, and I loved working in oil and gas. So it was nothing about oil and gas that caused me to move across to geothermal energy. Um, it was more the lure of something that was more environmentally uh, sensitive. I've been an environmentalist. I didn't describe myself as an eco-warrior. I always do whatever I can to to help make the world a better place uh, environmentally, um, whether that's uh, whether that's helping operations shape time away uh, from what they're doing, or picking up litter from the beach, uh, or whether it's in my everyday life, um, the way I choose to live. Um, but geothermal, for me, was the next step. Um, the idea that I could work with a company that is using the talents that I've built over 30 years in oil and gas to do something really, really very positive. Um, and, and that that was over and above the the carrot, if you like, um, that drew me towards geothermal. Oh, wow, this is so inspirational. And you are right. Sometimes we think those two realms are so wide uh, apart and they have so many um, similarities. But one thing that you have said that I really like is we need to believe in this. We need to have that passion and we need to be it. Um, and it becomes our way of live more so than just a, a job or a task. And we have said this with almost all the panelists that have come in this capsule. One thing that is very common between all of us is that it really becomes our way of being so we can influence just by being whoever is our, empowering us, like whoever is around us. So that is very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's something that I didn't really, I didn't know exactly what I was jumping into when I decided to, to become uh, a geothermal worker. Uh, I just knew that it sounded good. So I, I started doing research into exactly what it was. Uh, I'm a geologist, so I kind of had it in the back of my mind. I knew the basic concepts. Um, but to me, the really interesting thing was the new technologies uh, and particularly um, with Serapy Energy, the company that I'm a part of. The fact that we have taken geothermal energy to the next level and 
you don't have to live in Iceland. You don't have to live in the western coast of uh, of the states or somewhere near a volcano. We can do geothermal energy anywhere. And to me, that was the the magic, because it means that we can we can help communities have this this carbon dioxide free energy generated literally anywhere on the planet, and and that's something that helps decarbonize whatever it might be. Um, but it, it, for me, that was kind of the key. And it was something that really got my juices blowing, made me enthusiastic. Um, and as time's gone by, I've been with therapy now for two and a half years. Um, I've, I kind of enjoy what I'm doing more and more. And to be honest, I guess like, like most people, the job that I'm doing isn't what I expected. Um, but that kind of makes it more exciting if you like it's it's and every day is different so uh the idea of being able to help save the planet one megawatt at a time um and to enjoy it is and and basically doing something that that i that i really love uh it, it's a gift absolutely absolutely well congratulations i think Thank it you. is it is an achievement of feeling when I hear your voice, you feel, it seems like you are fulfilled. You are at that big moment of, okay, I'm doing what I love and I love what I do. And uh, that is, that is really, it really feels through your voice and your speech. So, and that is uh, something that requires a little bit of, you know, patting the back. You are. Well, th thank you. It's yeah. I, I... I do, I do enjoy it, um, and people who who talk to me uh, about geothermal energy, about solar feed, uh, they always say that 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 enjoyment, that satisfaction, always comes through, um, and and I'm pleased. Uh, it, I, they say that we make our own luck. It it took me a lot of hard work um, to to find the right place, um, but and it's taken a lot of time as well. Um, but it was it was worthwhile. That's for sure. That's excellent. So tell us a little bit about this geothermal. Like what is the, would you have said there is a lot of similarities with oil and gas, but perhaps you can tell us in a nutshell what okay, my, that entails. My nutshells tend to be quite large. So if I talk too much, then please just let me know. Um, okay. So <laughs> it's something that I'm enthusiastic about. So um, I can elaborate so please just tell me if i'm going too far but the similarities um first one is obvious both oil and gas and geothermal need to drill wells uh and and that was what just first steered me in the direction of geothermal because i thought well i've got these obvious skills from oil and gas that i can i can apply uh and and help save geothermal projects time uh, because obviously the profit margins for geothermal are much, much smaller than they are for oil and gas. Um, and, and as a result, I thought, well, not just drilling skills, but my optimization and cost-saving skills would be very well suited to geothermal. And of course they are. Um, but, and my, my, my transition from one to the other was, uh, was quite obvious, but other people in oil and gas are, are making the, the jumps to renewable energies as well. Uh, in less obvious ways. Um, and, and sometimes it, it makes it very difficult 
for them to decide exactly where to go. They just know that they don't want to work in oil and gas. They want to work in renewables, but how to get there. So it, it can be a difficult and challenging thing. Um, but to go on and talk about uh, geothermal uh, a little bit more, geothermal energy has been around for centuries. Uh, I mean, the Romans used the heat to heat their villas and uh, it's been used hot springs for bathing and various other things through the millennia. But modern geothermal started in 1904 in Tuscany in Italy. It's where the first electricity was generated from a geothermal well. And it always makes me scratch my head a little bit because I think about I mean, that's a long time. So that's 119 years ago. That's a long time. But geothermal energy is still a tiny, tiny business. The, the, the most recent figures I have are from 2019. And during that year, the, the entire geothermal business was worth $4.9 billion. The oil and gas business at the same time was worth between three and $4 trillion. That's a lot more zeros uh, and a lot uh, a lot more money. Um, and those two numbers to me demonstrate the differences in the businesses. The amount of money that is spent on geothermal energy is, is very, very small. Uh, and, and the reason for that, in my view, is the amount of success that the geothermal energy business has, uh, benefited from over the last century, uh, it's not very much. And, and the main reason for that is that success isn't guaranteed in, in uh, geothermal projects uh, and that creates reticence when it comes to investment. If you look at oil and gas, it takes five exploration wells on average before you make a discovery. But when you make that discovery, you make a lot of money. In geothermal, it takes a very long time to plan a project. It takes a long time to secure funding as traditionally in the past. Uh, and then I'm talking about conventional geothermal, uh, something referred to as open loop. They have to drill two or more wells. And the reason for that is that they pump water down the first well, which is heated up in the hot rocks uh, beneath the surface. So that water is pumped into one well, it's heated up. And then the theory is it travels in an open loop through rocks and second or third wells will then basically harvest that hot water, which is taken to surface, uh, in the form of steam and it drives a, a turbine to generate electricity. That's the old school open loop system. And, um, as I've mentioned, the problem is there's a, a fundamental flaw in that system. And that is that sometimes the water is pumped down the first well and it disappears. It's never seen again. And I saw the expression on your face thing. I mean, that's, that's a, that's the end of the project. So picture somebody who's been planning this for many, many years. They've struggled to get fi finance. They finally have got finance from, from a financier who's brave enough to invest in something that isn't a sure thing. And they drill these two or three or four wells at huge expense. And then after all of that, there's no communication, which means the whole project it is for nothing. 
Uh, it may have created a great science project. There may be some learnings from it, but there's no business to be had from that project. And that is the reason that geothermal energy is still only producing 0.3% of global energy. It's a fundamental flaw in the old school system. So the new developments in technology, which have happened over the last five years, I'll say, um, are what's referred to as advanced geothermal systems or closed loop. Closed loop involves having complete control of that system. So each, each uh, closed loop company is slightly different. Uh, and there are, let's say, less than 10 um, of the major uh, closed loop geothermal companies um, in the world. Of course, I think the Seraphie is, is the, the most interesting and the best, but uh, that's just my opinion. Uh, other people might disagree. Um, there are some fantastic um, companies with very innovative ideas. Uh, the, the first one that always springs to mind is Evor. Um, it's a Canadian company uh, based actually, I think, maybe in Calgary. I'm not sure where you are. Um, but Evor has uh, developed and is evolving uh, a closed loop system, which is uh, looking at very, very large projects and specifically at electricity generation. Um, and drilling very, very technical wells. Um, and they're, they're doing very well as far as their marketing is concerned. And they've secured a couple of uh, large projects, notably in Germany, actually, at the moment. Um, so they're very interesting. There's uh, in in uh, the US, there's Greenfire, there's Sage, uh, there's, there's Fervo, uh, and, and a few others. At Criterion, they're doing great things um, out of Texas. Um, so it's great to see that we have sister companies for want of a better word uh, even though we're not uh, actually um we're not tied in any way um we always we always wish them the very best because there isn't enough geothermal energy we need more we need all of those companies i've just named and all of the others that i haven't to do really really well we need them to produce as much of this clean energy as we can um so this closed loop technology is problem solving. It mitigates the risks of um, of the open loop system. So what we do at Seraphy, I'll talk about Seraphy because it's, it's what I know about. We only need a single well. Um, so there's, there's no second well for us to pump a fluid to. So what we do is we have um, what we call pipe in pipe. So we drill a well, which is cased off from the rocks. Uh, using steel and, and cement. And then we run a pipe down the middle of this um, casing and we can then have a sealed system. So the whole well from top to bottom doesn't have communication with the outside um, and we can pump a working fluid of our choice around this well. So we pump down the outside of this uh, of this well or outs outside I need to choose my my term, my uh, language carefully. We pump down the outside of the pipe in the well, and then the fluid is heated by conduction because the rocks surrounding the well will heat the well. Then the fluid 
is warmed up as it goes down the outside of this pipe. The, the configuration of the pipe is something that is uh, special to us. Um, and we have basically a downhole heat exchange system. So we take the heat energy from the outside, from the rocks, and that fluid, as it's pumped around, gathers the heat. It then comes up the middle of the pipe, and we use heat exchanges at surface to take that heat and use it for whatever we might need it for. So that closed loop system means that we don't have to pump anything into the rocks. We don't have to take water, which is a very scarce resource, and pump it so that it disappears because the open loop systems only harvest a small percentage of what they, they pump down. So we're saving water. We have no waste. Uh, that's really, really a big deal. Um, lots of these open loop, uh, open loop geothermal projects, the successful, what successful ones will have a great many toxic minerals elements that come to surface that they need, they, they then need to deal with. Um, they also have some horrible gases that, that need to be, uh, controlled. So we have no waste. Um, we have no water required. Something else that we don't do, which is unique to the open loop system, uh, it's something that I refer to as seismic hooliganism. Um, it's it's when the open loop systems generate earthquakes, um, and they do that by pumping these vast amounts of water and shocking the rocks. It's either through uh, some people fault lubrication or or temperature and pressure changes. So what they do is they they generate earthquakes when they pump these fluids into the ground. If you live in the Western states where you have earthquakes all the time, then it's not such a big deal. But if you live in Northern France where they don't have earthquakes, then it can ruin a project. So by having a closed loop system, we don't participate in this earthquake generation of seismic hooliganism. Um, no waste, no, uh, no water loss. And we can guarantee uh, that we can create energy from every single well we drill. So this this is something that is is important because what we've done is we have mitigated the risks associated with traditional geothermal energy, and that to me is a revolution, and that's why um, geothermal is growing and growing and growing, and will continue to grow. I mentioned that, the, that this new closed loop um, technology is kind of about five years old or less. They're calling the 2020s a geothermal decade, and it's purely off the back of these closed loop systems. At the same time, um, because geothermal energy is, is gaining more attention, then a few uh, open loop systems are also being uh, funded, which is great, uh, because when they work, they are really, really good. Um, but it's it's basically bringing attention back to geothermal energy and putting it where it belongs in the forefront of a great many conversations like the one we're having now. Wow, that's amazing. And you did a really good job in vulgarizing uh, the idea of what it is. It's not an elephant. It can be uh, productive and it is a fantastic source that really, if we use it in a good way. Now, the, the fantastic thing about this is that the industry in general took 
what seemed to be a big problem is started and converted it with solutions that are feasible into something great. And like you said, this is just bringing back all the attention that it is needed to have um, in, in this in this uh, in this realm of, of uh, I'm just thinking on the possibilities that now that you have moved away some of the challenges that seem to be the biggest for the old technology. Yeah. It's uh, it, it's the possibilities that I find uh, I find most uh, rewarding and interesting, uh, and the particular element that I find fascinating and I think will be a game changer is the use of direct heat. Now, direct heat um, is is something that we could we either receive as a sole purpose of drilling a well, or um, it's through secondary heat. For example, if we drill a well to generate electricity, we don't use all of that heat. There's there's other heat that's just sitting there on the side. You know, it's for us to 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 cherry pick it as and will as and when we we want to. Direct heat. Uh, let me put it into context. I'm sitting in the UK. Fifty one percent of household energy in the UK is used for heating either heating water or heating spaces. That's huge. 51% of domestic energy. We in the UK use that by pumping in um, gas to uh, houses or by pumping electricity. Both of those things are then converted to heating, heating water for, for you know bathrooms or uh, kitchens and heating spaces to keep the houses from freezing. Beg your pardon. Um, so the idea that we can use direct heat for district heating, let's say for a group of houses or a small community of houses is, is a great, great asset. Um, then you look at other things you can use heat for industry, for example, uh, uses heat for so many things. Mm. And again, they ship in all of these these uh, hydrocarbon-based powers, usually, uh, in order to generate their heat. So, I mean, it's not just the fact that you're using hydrocarbons and, you, you know, that has its associated carbon footprint, um, but it's also really inefficient. You're converting one type of energy to another type of energy. That very simple process in itself is inefficient, and I hate inefficiency. Mm -hmm. So using direct heat from, let's say, a geothermal well, um, that's specifically drilled to heat the swimming pool in a leisure center, uh, to provide heat for a glasshouse uh, complex, to provide heat for a brewery or a, a sugar factory or whichever industrial process. Every time we do that, we are withdrawing a hydrocarbon use from the energy world. So we truly are helping to save the planet. And, and to me, that is, it's, it's, it's a fantastic thing to be able to do. And I love the fact that I've done that. I can do that because I've spent a lot of time working in the oil and gas business. 
have taken they because they spent so much time training us to do things better and safer and faster. I've taken what they've given me and I'm grateful for, and I'm applying it to begin putting them out of business. And and don't get me wrong, it's going to take a hundred years before we don't need oil and gas. Um, but the technology that that Serafi and our sister geothermal companies are introducing will help reduce the world's reliance on hydrocarbons. And to me, that's a fantastic thing because it makes the world a cleaner, better place. Absolutely. And it makes, like you said, the transition. So it's just they like thinking on better ways, more efficient ways of working. And I think that was, and you mentioned it before, can you give me an idea maybe um, or, or in terms of lifespan, let's say, because some of those pieces of equipment, like you mentioned, to generate, they do have lifespans and that is where we come into place, right? Material engineers would come and we say, okay, this is the best material. This is the corrosion you will have. This is the integrity you will have. This is the plant. Uh, how does that work in your world? I, that's a great question and, um, and I'm glad you asked because it, it's something that I, I like to focus on, uh, in, in the presentations that I give, um, because closed loop is not exposed to these horrible, corrosive, toxic fluids that come from deep geology, then the lifespan of our wells is much, much longer than, um, for example, oil, oil and gas wells, or from the open loop geothermal uh, wells. The open loop geothermal wells in particular, um, they can be exposed to some really nasty uh, cocktails of of chemical nastiness. And those, and of course, because they're at heat, um, then heat, as you know, acts as a catalyst and it speeds up the corrosion process of what they have at the bottom of their holes. We shield ourselves from that because we, we, we're not exposed to any of those chemicals at all. Um, we have some very high grade steel that goes in our, in our holes to, uh, separate us from formation fluid. Because of that, let's say the lifespan of a, a life cycle of a, a, a closed loop geothermal well or an oil and gas, I beg your pardon, open loop geothermal well or an oil and gas well might be. Um, let's say 20 to 30 years before it needs some serious help, either to be completely worked over or to have something taken out and, and replaced. That's not a problem that we will have in closed loop. I can't tell you how long our wells will last because it's brand new technology, but at therapy, we think that it's going to be 50 to hundred years before we need to look at uh, whatever it was it is we might need to do because we can choose the material we put in the hole and we can choose the fluid that we circulate around that hole. The research and development that we are doing, we are doing will help to, um, one to make the energy transfer more efficient, but also we can, we can adjust those fluids. Uh, to, to make sure that they're not as corrosive, even though, uh, some of them might be completely inert, but, um, we, we can change everything. We have complete control 
Uh, and, and this is my my optimization head loves this because it means that being in control means that you can every time you learn a lesson from what you're doing you can adjust it you can learn you can make it better um so when it comes to replacing our equipment the surface equipment will need to be replaced from time to time um in the case of electricity generation we're going to use something called an organic ranking cycle that is basically a, a, a very beefy heat exchanger it takes it takes heat uh and and uses that heat to change the state of a fluid which uh, in turn will create electricity and those those um orcs organic ranking cycles might need to be replaced from time to time let's say every 20 30 40 years i don't know um but because again because they are another um closed loop system then they are controlled and they can be developed and this is something else that we will spend our r d budget doing is to looking into how we can potentially make those orcs um more efficient um long last last uh longer as well but saying that we're not just looking at um using these orcs we have our eyes open all the time we're having an inquisitive um mindset at therapy so we're all always looking for ways that we can potentially generate electricity without using these orcs we're also looking at at other things that we can use our heat for um and we we're contacted by companies all the time um a few weeks ago it was a brewery that came to me saying we've already decarbonized our, our electricity but now we're looking at decarbonizing our our heat use can you help us and of course the answer is yes so we have our demonstration project that's going to happen um in the next couple of months as i mentioned we're two and a half years old we will be producing our first energy before we're three uh so to me that's that's kind of impressive um and when we finish with this demonstration project the heat from that particular well will be used for a distillery uh and again to me that's it's very exciting because normally a distillery would have to bring in its its power in the uk it would have to be uh hydrocarbon based generally speaking so i mean we we do have um we do have a very large wind um energy industry in the uk but uh, on days like today when it's nice and sunny and it's very calm um those turbines aren't helping us at all um so it's, so the the particular uh distillery owner that we're talking to can see that that's a flaw and they want to use green energy all of the time they, they don't want to have to turn off because the wind's not blowing um and or because it's it's a dull day and the solar panels aren't working so geothermal uh is baseload it's 24 7 365 every day of the year it, it's it's there whenever you need it uh, and that's the great thing and I've, I, i'm not i'm not dissing the other forms of renewable energy but we can complement them so you have wind and you have solar for those times when it's suitable to use them but then in the background you always have geothermal for those times that the other sources aren't working the energy mix has to be just that it has to, to use everything and including hydrocarbons at the moment uh, because we need more 
we need more energy than we have. So we have to use everything that we can. It's about that holistic approach. Absolutely. And you have touched in, in great points on how we can, it is not about I am better or this, my new technology is better or this wind is better or this solar is better. It's how we can integrate and use and complement each other and then make efficient out of everything that is available. So those are really good points. We have spoken about a lot of great things. What is some of the downside that you can see with this technology? I always like to see from the perspective of, okay, let's look at, at the good things, but what can you see it is some of the less appealing uh, topics on, on, on geothermal? That's a really interesting question. And uh, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. No one has ever asked me that question before. <laughs> um, but what are the downsides? Uh, I have a long, long, long list of the upsides. There isn't a single downside to what we do. It's guaranteed energy. It's carbon dioxide free. Uh, it's, it's efficient because uh, we can use direct heat. It's baseload. It can be off-grid, uh, which is a fantastic thing uh, when you look at uh, infrastructure being uh, the, the weak point in lots of power systems. Um, it has an incredibly small footprint. Think about the footprint of a solar farm, for example. All of our infrastructure is under the ground. Um, we can even put our wellheads under the ground. And if a climate particularly wants it, our energy center can be under the ground. So we can have zero footprint in an extreme case. Generally speaking, that won't happen. But if you can picture a well site, I don't know how much you know about drilling, drilling wells, but a well site um, might be in the extreme case, 100 meters by 100 meters. Um, and so you need you need space for equipment to, to be moved around and uh, and uh, for forklift trucks and 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 all of this stuff so that they can maneuver. When the well has been drilled and the rig moves off location and we just have our energy center, our pad shrinks and shrinks and shrinks to maybe let's say 25 by 25. Or indeed, it can be hidden completely. The energy center, if it's offensive to the eye because we're in a national park or something like that, it can be disguised as a large dwelling or something like that using local materials. We can be as environmentally sensitive as any uh, renewable energy can be. So what was your question? What's the downside? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I dare you to find one. That's amazing. And that is, you know, it's something when, when we spoke about, for example, wind and not only the, the footprint, but also you look at the life cycle and looking at the recyclability of the whole turbine and, you know, the portions that are metallic 
indeed, we can recycle them and move on the electric electric portion that time. But when it comes to the the biggest sections, and they are fiber, uh, fiber, carbon or fiberglass. It is just right now that we are making efforts to see how can we break those into the cycle and make it really circular because otherwise it is just becoming a cementier and, and a land that we just carve and then put all those pieces that are broken or don't, don't serve the purpose anymore and then just tie them up. But it will not degrade. It will not, of course, sure it will not degrade. So the really and truly thing to do it was to break those components into the elements and they get them back into, and it's just right now that we are exploring avenues like that. So that, for example, was, um, a big downside that I found in wind energy. Yes. Um, same with, with solar, um, while we're talking about downsides of, of energy, uh, that, that is a downside of those. They, they use these rare earths and exotic minerals. Geothermal doesn't. Um, which isn't a downside either, is it? Uh, so, you know, we, we, we don't use these rare earths and, and you, you've probably seen these, these horrific pictures in exposés like the National Geographic, where you have children mining in the Congo. Um, that's not something that's associated with us. It might be associated with your EV. It might be associated with wind and solar, but it's not associated with geothermal. We use steel and some some uh, I guess high-grade rubber products, um, but we we use those very simple things. Uh, and at Serapy, we will make sure that every part of our process is as environmentally sensitive as possible. Um, we we create efficiency in everything we do. Uh, even we, we even go as far as planting trees. I mean, we haven't planted enough trees yet, but we've started doing that. Um, and it, it's an ambition of ours to have a therapy woodland, which will grow into a therapy forest somewhere to help us offset our carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. If you look at our well sites, we will start using solar and wind in a very small way to help drive the pumps that we need to pump the fluid around our systems. So we will, we will do our very best not to leave any footprint. That's amazing. It is, um, it really has me excited now. <laughs> so you can understand why I'm enthusiastic. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can absolutely see, uh, why it is all that, uh, because it, it, it sounds you've covered a lot of the things that were not in any other uh, technology. And like I said before, it's not a matter of competing or who is best or I am better than Orlando as it is just how we can complement and make it this a better and more efficient solution for everyone. I think my, my next question will be, because it's new technology and then we have for example, in oil and gas or in general, when we were designing and things like the code, when they first built the first refineries, it was like 
this thick. It was really little, maybe 30 pages or so. And now we have different volumes and, and volumes of codes and more entities regulating and giving us guidelines and standards on how to build, how to maintain, operate. And since this is uh, very new, is there any, what are the regulations? Maybe that's my question. Are they already like a standards guide? Like how is this, how we can ensure that this is, it has the same standard of ethical and like you guys seem to have a solid understanding, but how can we ensure that there is no one from whatever place that comes and cleans? They know it all. It's a good question, and I'm glad that you used the words regulation and also ethics, because they're two different things. Um, for example, oil and gas um, has very, very strict regulations. Just about everywhere there is oil and gas, the regulations are there. But you have some companies which are absolutely 100% ethical in, in their approach to everything they do. But you also have some which aren't quite so ethical. Uh, and, and that is, that is to a degree down to uh, policing from the outside, but more than anything else, it's about those companies not really want to, wanting to follow the rules. Um, at Serafi, we are aware of the downsides of oil and gas. We are aware of the downsides of drilling um, wells, for example. Um, the regulation side of things is different wherever you go. For example, in the UK, we don't have a geothermal industry. Uh, we, we have one well which has been um, producing uh, not too far from me in, in Southampton. Um, that has been used to heat um, buildings for a long time. It's actually not working now, but it didn't require regulation. Um, and then some time ago, there were a couple of projects that were drilled in the southwest of England, in Cornwall, where I'm from. And that's it. So, you know, two or three jobs. And as a result, there's no, there's no, government body that, that oversees geothermal because it, it's not an industry that's considered. Um, if we want to drill wells, for example, we will be drilling some modest depth wells, let's say 1500 meters or two kilometers deep. Um, we don't need to satisfy any regulation in order to do that. Uh, we have to speak to the environment agency in England, um, but, and we still so have to make sure that we don't poison aquifers, deep or shallow, uh, but that's it. Um, so that, that's an isolated okay, uh, example. But if you look at, I don't know, um, Iceland, for example, I'm sure they have very, very stringent rules and regulations that they had to follow because they have a very established geothermal business. So at Serafi, our approach is to follow oil and gas guidelines because they are extreme. We 
have to ensure that we can live with the decisions that we make. So our well design, for example, is is always going to be the toughest design. We will always go the extra mile to make sure that first of all everyone is safe, um, but second, secondly, that the environment is is looked after um, almost as well as we look after our people. Uh, so we we have to we have to do everything we can to ensure that our our wells are drilled safely and and in a very very environmentally sensitive fashion uh, and that's down to us so we 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 joined the united nations uh, esg um policy we we follow that and are registered to follow as following that um so those those 17 goals those 17 targets is something that we we believe in and we participate in um i can't speak for other geothermal companies or other countries really um, but all I can say is that we will go beyond regulation everywhere we go. And something that struck my mind about what you said is we, it really comes down to who's taking the decisions. And that's something that I have been uh, very vocal about. And I, I don't I don't fair opportunity to speak about how we need to take decision specifically in our realm, in, in our own God, in municipalities, in we need to take informed decisions and we need to make sure that we understand what is down the road, looking at the whole life cycle uh, for the assets. Um, and it's not only oil and gas, let's say municipalities. So it is really those decisions that someone takes in a moment that if they are not looking at the picture entirely might be causing something very dramatic at the end. And we have had incidents very bad. Like we almost had incidents about that nature every day. I had someone coming into the podcast and he said, I did the research and it's like three incidents per day that are caused by integrity or corrosion and we could have done something about. Mm -hmm. So it ultimately comes with uh, to the decision makers and then how those people are taking responsibility for what is coming down after. So I'm really glad to hear that it is self-imposed and you guys are doing it because you want to do it, not because someone is telling you like we have been taught that way right like the regulation if you don't do this then if your inspection plan is not good then we'll remove the the, the rights to operate or we'll stop the operation so if you make that is very reactive and it's not something that is sustainable in itself because then you depend on someone always telling you how to do things yeah, absolutely. I mean, because of our early guest background uh, and the safety training, and um, I, I, I'll I'll have a discussion with anybody who considers oil and gas is not safe because it is potentially one of the safest businesses there is, uh, and and the way that oil and gas approaches safety, it's methodical, it is relentless, um, 
And and I, I think that's only a good thing. But you also have to allow for human error, which does happen. Uh, you mentioned being reactive. Uh, it's important to be able to be reactive if you need to. Um, in the case of oil and gas, they everybody on an oil rig, for example, looks rigs in my background, I worked in upstream oil and gas. Everybody from the guy who's cooking lunch to the guy who's overseeing the entire job has the ability to stop everything. And that's always important. It's important to listen to uh, everyone's perspective, everyone's opinion. Um, it's important to plan everything to the nth degree and make sure that you have everything covered as we learn from oil and gas. But it's also important to be able to stop that if your plans either aren't being followed or something unforeseen happens. Unforeseen things do happen. Um, so that, that ability and those lessons from oil and gas are important to learn. If something's going wrong, stop. Absolutely. And time just went by so fast. We are at the end of our podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. It's amazing and how passionate you are and how that transfer, even though we are miles and miles away. <laughs> and really thank you very much for coming. Do you have any last message for the, the audience, the people that are listening to us? A message? Um... Well, I, I guess, uh, I guess to keep it simple, uh, first of all, thank you to everybody who's listened to me uh, and my passion. <laughs> it's it's something that I I will talk to anybody about, um, and, and it's it, it it's something I obviously feel very uh, strongly about. But I, I I think that as time goes by, projects like the ones that, that we're entering into now will become more commonplace. Um, don't be scared of seeing an oil rig. Uh, because it might not be an oil rig, it might be a geothermal rig. Uh, you know, don't don't be concerned about us drilling wells. What we do is very safe. And please, um, if you want to talk to uh, me about geothermal energy, reach out. I'm always happy to talk to anybody there is. And just think about all of the benefits that I've talked about. And as I say, I, I dare you to find a downside because I, I don't think there is one. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Andy, thank you so much for coming, for everyone that is listening and watching to us. Thank you for your support. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being part of this community that is growing by the day. And I'll see you in the next two weeks. Thank you.